Take your Bibles and open them up to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 16 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 13 through 20 as we continue our series entitled Rocks. Real creative title, um, Rocks. And we've been looking at a number of things that have everything to do with um, rocks that we find in Scripture and the lessons that we learn and the things that it teaches and what it means to us. We've talked about the fact that remembering rocks, we've talked about the fact that um, uh, Easter rocks, and then today we talk about the fact that church rocks. And we're going to go to what is probably a familiar passage of Scripture uh, that you have heard before at some point, probably heard a sermon or two on if you've logged a lot of church time. And we're going to drill down into it for a little bit today and see if there's something there that we need to hold on to and maybe think about and just uh, a little bit different way than we have in the past. And so beginning in verse 16, or I'm sorry, beginning in chapter 16, verse 13, we read these words. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. There are a lot of words that can be used to describe a rock. Strong, reliable, hard. And if you drill down deeper, I, I told you when we started the series, the word is also low, rich in minerals and metaphors, and there's even movement wrapped around them. And we've been discovering that the rocks that we find in Scripture Although it is really just a rock, it means so much, and when you tie it into the full narrative of what the Bible says, there's something that we can learn. Today is no exception. And so, as we begin, I want to share a story about a wife who asked her, her very practical-thinking programmer husband to go to the store. And she says to him, can you go to the grocery store and get a gallon of milk, and if they have eggs, get six? He leaves, he goes shopping, later on he returns home, and she looks at his purchases, opens the bag and says, why in the world did you get six gallons of milk? And he responded, they had eggs. Now remember what her instructions were. Can you go to the grocery store and get a gallon of milk, and if they have eggs, get six? He got six gallons of milk because they had eggs. It is important to understand what's being said. It's important to understand the context it's being said in. And it's important to understand what the intent of the conversation is. And all of those things are wildly important uh, when it comes to this particular passage of Scripture. If you have ever seen pictures of the Holy Land, some of you have been there, um, you may visit an Arab town called Benaeus, a Benaeus. To get there, you've got to travel north from Jerusalem and go to Tiberias and then even further along what is that sliver of Galilee. On your left, you will see a mountain range. On your right, uh, you will see another mountain range. One would be Lebanon, beyond the other one is Syria. And then you travel north again out of Galilee and go a little bit further. And when you go a little bit further, you come to a town. It's a called, it's really more of a settlement. And it is a place called Benias. There are a few buildings there. There is a spring that is there. And behind the spring is an enormous rock cliff. That becomes the predominant landmark of this particular place. Um, built into the cliff is a Catholic monastery. Uh, not far from the cliff is the majestic snow-covered Mount Hermon. Uh, and that is Benias today. But many generations ago, it was called something else. It was called Caesarea Philippi, the place where this conversation takes place. 
The backdrop of this conversation that we just read is against that magnificent mountain backdrop in this small town where Jesus has now gone with the disciples. And interestingly enough, in the shadow of a massive cliff, Jesus has a conversation with his closest friends and tells one of them, you're a rock. See, sometimes the Bible just is so big in its picture that we miss it if you don't know those things. And context becomes important as well. Because, for example, and again, uh, context means everything. This is a conversation that as we unpack it this morning, and we're going to spend some time actually looking at some, some things in Scripture that, that really have a lot to do with um, uh, Bible study. And, and we're going to, as I say, drill down. We're going to really look closely at a couple things so you can get a full understanding of the passage. But context matters as well. So that is the setting. The context of it we'll talk about in a minute. But, for example, if this is a conversation that Jesus is having with Peter, let's say they weren't born in the Middle East. Let's say they were born here in the United States. Let's say, for example, that the Messiah came from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And they decided to go to Philadelphia to have this conversation. Jesus might say, yo, your name will be Peter. I'll call you Rocky. (laughs) Now, that may sound sacrilegious to you, but it's not, not at all. Because only that is the conversation that they're having. This is where Jesus steps in and in the middle of this setting, in the middle of the context, in the middle of all that he's trying to say, he's changing Simon's name to Peter, which is translated rock or rocky. That was going to be uh, the lead disciple from this point on in so many ways, although he already was, and he will emerge and continue to emerge as a leader. And so... There are a couple of things that you need to see that are here that are a part of this and understanding uh, uh, why church rocks. And the first one is a crucial question, if you will, that's found in verse 15. Before I read you the verse, I want to tell you a story about an atheist that was spending a very quiet day fishing when suddenly his boat was attacked by the Loch Ness Monster. (laughs) In one easy flip, uh, the beast tossed him and his boat high into the air. As he floated through the sky and he and the boat continued to go upward, he fell out of the boat and was separated from the boat. He went one way, the boat went the other. The Loch Ness Monster came up out of the water, opened his jaws, waiting for the man to come back and fall down his throat so he could eat him. As the man flew head over heels, he cried out to heaven, Oh God, please help me. At once, the ferocious attack scene came to a halt. It was as if you pushed the pause button on your Blu-ray player and froze the scene. Monster still with jaws open below him. Boat suspended in the sky on the other side of him. Him upside down, falling toward the monster, but stopped. Frozen in motion. And as the scene froze, a voice from heaven said, I thought you didn't believe in me. And hanging upside down, the man said, please, God, give me a break. Two minutes ago, I didn't believe in the Loch Ness Monster either. (laughs) There's a lot that gets thrown at you. And sometimes believing and putting your belief into place and kind of putting it into perspective becomes a little bit difficult. And when we think about God, you have to understand that, that what we think about God matters. But what we think about God doesn't matter nearly as much as what we believe about God. And there's a lot of people who think a lot of things about God. And there's a lot of wiggle room out there. But what really matters is, what do you believe about God? And that strikes at the heart of where we start this look this morning. That strikes at the heart of what happens first. When they get to Caesarea Philippi, what happens in that Gentile city changes the course of history. Because Jesus asks the question in verse 13, who do men say that I am? And the disciples, as they often did, hemmed and hawed, and they mumbled about, and they uh, came up with answers that sounded good. John the Baptist, uh, one said, oh, Elijah, some said Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then in verse 15, Jesus asked the question, but who do you say that I am? 
And that's the fundamental question, isn't it? Who do you say I am? See, it's one thing to know the answers that others have. And, and I've been pastor now a long time, and I can tell you what people think about God. I hear answers all the time about what people think about God. It's a good thing to know. You can go to school to learn that. You can read papers and learn that. You can go to seminary and learn that. There are books we can read about that. It's good to know what people's opinions are of God. No doubt about it. Helps. It helps me in most conversations I have, especially a spiritual conversation. I, I'm trying to have a spiritual conversation, and I, I want to know what people think about God. It's good. Ah, but what they think and what they believe are two different things. And what matters most is the personal question. Who do you say that I am? See, when Jesus asked this question against this backdrop, this rock setting, he had come to a point where the Bible has said that he went to his own people and his own people rejected him. He has gotten to a point in the journey where those who are really listening and dialing in to what it means to be a follower of Jesus are also leaving in droves. See, people like the miracles. They like the show. They like the free food. Jesus can gather a crowd when he feeds them with just some fish and bread. I mean, everybody comes out for that, right? It costs them nothing, and it's spectacular. But then when you get to the nitty-gritty of, oh, but he wants me to do something with my life, and he wants me to be serious, and I don't hold, like this whole conversation about taking up your cross. What's that all about? And, of course, this is prior to his death. So you're talking about crucifixion, and they have no frame of reference to know that he's going to be crucified. They're, they're putting a little bit of distance now between this rabbi who is so radical, this religious teacher who is saying things that they like on one hand, but on the other hand, they don't like it. Because Jesus is starting to kind of wiggle into their personal space a little bit. And he's asking the question, who do you say that I am? And where answers revealed um, that a lot of people just had no idea who he was, even though they'd seen him, even though they'd heard him. I mean, that's why some thought he was John the Baptist. That's why some prophet. That's why some prophet. I mean, the, the answer's all over the planet. People are thinking a lot about Jesus, but the crucial question is, who do you say that I am? And there against that massive rock cliff, something else has happened. And when Jesus asked the question, I, I will tell you that as I was studying and getting ready for this series, there was something that I found in my study that I know you're going to go, really, That's, you're going to even take the time to mention this? And I am, because... It's what you do sometimes when you study. I've read the story hundreds of times. I've taught the story more times than I can tell you. There's something about this particular time when I studied that I saw that I had never seen before. So for those of you who like Bible trivia, this is your moment. You won't remember anything else today. But Jesus stops and he asks the question, who do you say that I am? In the language that it's originally written in, he was not asking a personal question to Peter. He was asking a question that was meant in the plural, written in the plural. In other words, although Peter's going to step up and answer, and Peter becomes the one that Jesus responds to with all the statements that follow that you just read, Peter, in the moment, was answering a plural question as the spokesman for all of the disciples. See, I used to tell this story for years where I, I, I told it as the disciples were their usual goof-up selves, and they were all kind of hemming and hawing, looking for answers, and Peter finally was sitting there and he says, I've got one. It's like a brilliant thought hit. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're, you're blessed, and I'm going to change your name, and on this rock I'll build my church. We'll call you Rocky. But that's not what it was. This was a conversation, a serious conversation that he's having in the midst of all the other things that's happening, all the activity that's happening where people are starting to leave. And he asks him this question. He kind of lays this question out for the whole group. Who do y'all say that I am? Better translation, deep south. Who y'all say I am? And I guarantee you they looked at each other for a couple minutes. 
And as they always did when they needed a leader, they looked to Peter. It would have been John, but John was a young kid. So he was probably standing next to Peter, probably elbowed him. Say something, fishy. And so then Peter steps up and he makes a statement. It's a bold, it's a declarative statement. But it is that moment, and Peter, be, Peter becomes a spokesman, not just for himself, but for all 12 uh, of the disciples that are there. And he says in verse 16, you are the Christ, son of the living God. A simple, concise answer. And from that answer, the world shifted its course. Because Jesus looked back at Peter, and he said to him in verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It was that call-out moment. That's why this passage matters so much. It was the moment that he called them out, and basically, as all the crowds are shifting around him, and people are leaving, and people are starting to move away, Jesus looks at those that are real close to him, and he basically is having that conversation that is a heart-to-heart conversation, and he says, look, that's what other people believe in. What do you think? Who am I to you? What do you believe about me? See, over this past week, I've met folks who think God is a great guy. This past week, I've met folks who think of God as a celestial slot machine. If they pull the right lever, God will give them what they want. I've met folks this week and had a conversation with people this week who believe in a God who they have, believe that God is like a genie in a bottle. I ask him and I rub the lamp right and he's going to give me what I want and I'm in a crisis so I need what I need. Jesus is cutting beyond all of that stuff and all of that junk and all of those things that are out there and basically asking a question that strikes to the heart of everything that we have to deal with in our life. Who do you believe that I am? And Peter's answer is huge. The Christ. You are the Son of the Living God. And that answer changes everything. And for you listening today, that answer changes everything for you, by the way, because if you really believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the Living God, not a celestial slot machine, not a genie in a bottle, not some kind of cosmic force in the universe, but if you believe He is the Christ, the Son of the Living God, and you believe that He died for you so He could give you a life that is worth living, it will change everything that you live for, and everything you do in your life. And if you don't believe that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you don't have to change the way you live. You can just go on wishing and thinking of prayers as wishes, and maybe you'll get what you ask for. See, this is not just a simple little conversation that takes place next to a mountain. This is a moment where Jesus is asking those who are closest to him, what do you believe? And do you understand who I am? Because that is the commitment, that is the statement, that is the belief that everything else is going to be built on as they move forward in the future. Because these guys were Jesus' A plan. These are the guys that he already knew that were going to be in charge, that he was going to leave in charge, and when he left... These were going to be the guys that got it done. And so he's called them out. What do you believe? It's a big deal. Over the course of my life, as I deal with folks in ministry, I I meet folks all the time who have uh, things they want to talk about when it comes to spiritual stuff. They, They want to understand why God does this and why God does this and why God does this or how this fits and how this fits and how this fits. And sometimes they can start chasing themselves around a tree if they're not careful. And so sometimes the question that I use to bring them back on task is simply I'll say, before we talk about all that, I just need to know what we're talking about. So what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you believe that he is? Because if you believe that he is the Son of God, Savior of the world, now we have something to talk about because that's going to change the way that you view everything else that we're talking about. If you don't believe that, then we're never going to get on the same page. It changes the conversation because it is the crucial question. 
that everyone in this room has to answer. If you've never answered it, if you're watching or listening, and you've never made the decision to believe, trust, and follow Jesus, today is your day to decide that, and you need to do that. There's no magical prayer I can give you that will make it right for you. It is just a choice that you're going to make. And you're going to make that choice, and you're going to say, I believe, and I trust, and I want to follow you. And you're going to talk to God about that, and you're going to pray about it, and say, that's what I want to do. And if you do that, then uh, let us know that. Let me know that. I've got some things that I can share with you that will help you in that journey. Make the journey easier. Because everything changes. And if you don't believe that, then a whole lot of the other conversation, even this morning, you're not going to get. And by the way, if you don't believe it, then a whole lot of things that go on in the world around you are never going to make sense. Because you never have the right lens to look through. You never have the right filter to look through. You don't have enough of a perspective to be able to see it right. One of some of those Bible study classes going on right now is called Understanding the News, and we're actually looking at stuff that has to do with prophecy, which can be incredibly boring or incredibly scary or incredibly exciting. I don't know which it is. You can talk to the people who have been in there. Uh, we've, this is actually the second of the courses that we've done. And we've been actually looking at Russia and how Russia fits on the world stage in the news and in times prophecy and looking at all things of everyone's favorite quiet time book, Ezekiel. And reading about the Russian invasion of Israel in the end times. And as we've been looking at that, though, one of the things that we've been discovering is that when you put a biblical lens on and start looking at the things that go on around you, even when you turn on the news, it makes sense. Now, it may or may not make you feel better, but it makes sense. And as a follower, you can understand and have something to hold on to and anchor to in the upside-down crazy world that we live in. It stems back to this question. Who do you believe that he is? If he is who he says he is, everything changes. If not, then you're just talking. And so, let's not just talk. Let's drill down a little bit deeper into the rock and discover something else. Let's ask the question, what is the rock? Now, if you walk down this hallway toward the bathrooms and looked on the right-hand side of the hallway, we have given you a number of illustrations of rocks. There's rocks, famous rocks from all over the world, including Kid Rock, Chris Rock, Dwayne Rock Johnson, Rocky Balboa, um, Pop Rocks, which we gave out on Easter Sunday. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rock and Roller Coaster. I mean, there's lots of rocks back there. This is the rock. This is the rock. Verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And the forces of Haiti will not overpower it. I love that verse. This verse, when we first started ministry, back in uh, shortly after Al Gore invented the internet, um, when when churches were first having websites, we actually had a one of one of the earliest church websites out there. Some of you guys in the room will remember this. Um, and and our, our our screen that opened the screen, um, it, it it was it was done on purpose this way. Um, but we had a uh, I don't want to tell you. No, I'll tell you. No, I, I'll tell you. I do want to tell you. I'll tell you. And it was done because we were, we were desperately trying to, to find a niche where we could say um, some things that we thought were biblical and we thought people would listen. So when you came to our, our church webpage, it would come up with a st- soundtrack from Terminator. Dun, 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 dun. And in flames. And it would say, and it would quote, on this rock, I'll build my church in the gates of hell. So not prevail against it. And then it scrolled down and we were trying to make a biblical statement. And it said we were tougher than hell. Guess who banned our website? The Southern Baptist Convention. Our, our website was banned by the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and I had all these friends who worked for the Southern Baptist Convention in Lifeway who were calling me, we can't get to your website because you've got something on it that we can't, we can't see. I mean, we can't get to you. And it was, it was our lead page. Um, however, there was a whole lot of people that just loved it. Because no one at that time, and this was way back 
in, I mean, this is way back in the early days of, of the internet, uh, and people loved it, and they kind of gravitated. We, we eventually dropped it off so people could get to our website um, because we were getting blocked. Um, but this has been one of my favorite verses because it says everything about all we're supposed to be and the victory that we have in God. We are tougher than the forces of hell. Not because we're tough, but because he is. And you are a winner, not a loser. As the old Christian rap song, you're the head, not the tail. I mean, this is the moment where we have decided who we live for, what we believe, and because of that, everything changes. When Jesus looks and he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the forces of hell are not going to be tougher than you are. You are going to stand and you will be strong, and Satan doesn't win. I don't know about you, but that's really good news, isn't it? I mean, that's something to celebrate. That's something to be excited about. That changes everything. That should change the way that you walk out this building and go to lunch later. Because you have victory and you couldn't get it any other way. What is this rock that he's talking about? This is the moment where we begin to become the people that we were created to be. We get to step into the fullness of who God wants us to be. And he's going to band us together and make us something, something that with him we could never be without him. So Jesus says, Peter, you are my rock, man. Or you are my rock, man. Or you're rocky. But notice how this happens. This happens after Peter makes his great confession of faith. And the timing to understand this is critical. Because Jesus doesn't ask the question, look around and go, well, I don't have anything else to choose from. So, oh, Pete, you'll be. I'm going to change your name. Simon, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to use you. Instead, this happens after Peter makes a confession that means that he is not Peter the doubter or Peter the denier. He is the confessor. He says, I am confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, I will build on that, on that confession. And he wasn't just saying it to Peter alone. I mean, he was talking to his disciples here. And he said, I'm going to build off that, and I will build the church. I will build my people. I will build the people that make that decision to follow, and they will become something different. See, it's where the rubber meets the road. It's that confession where it's not just an idea. It becomes real. It's like the law of gravity. You can believe in gravity, and a lot of people have for a long time, but it really is just a theory. But you take a guy like Newton and let him meet that law, and suddenly history looks at gravity differently. Electricity. People had a concept of what electricity was. They knew what lightning was. Take a guy like a Ben Franklin who takes it. It becomes more than an idea. It becomes something radically different, and you figure out what to do with it. Take the theory of relativity. Not that complex an equation, but you take an Einstein who can take the theory of relativity, and all of a sudden... The atomic age is born. See, it's taking an idea, a concept, and believing in it and making a step of faith, and all of a sudden something happens. It is that moment when Werner Van Braun takes the concept of spaceflight and takes it from a dream on a piece of paper and does something with it and makes it a reality. This is the moment where all of a sudden the reason that you're sitting here today has become a reality is because on that rock side, next to that big cliff in Caesarea Philippi, Peter stepped up as Jesus asked the question and they responded to the question with a confession of faith and Jesus said, yes, if you believe that, then what's going to happen next is going to be incredible. It is that rubber meets the road moment where it becomes real. I told you before and a few years ago I shared with you, uh, some of you, uh, on my first trip to Philadelphia, I even came back to church with pictures. Um, because when I went to Philadelphia, the one thing that I had to see was the thing that, that everyone goes to Philadelphia for. I had to see the Philadelphia Art Museum. Because you know that the Philadelphia Art Museum is famous because, well, not because it has art. But because in 1976, one Sunday afternoon after church with Daryl Wilson, I went to a movie that was actually getting all sorts of reviews on uh, Sunday afternoon at the Parkwood Plaza Theater to see a movie that ultimately was going to win an Academy Award called Rocky. About a street fighter from Philadelphia 
who didn't have a shot, and he became a long shot, and he went the distance with a man by the name of Apollo Creed. And he stepped into motion picture history. Filmed in Philadelphia, when the city of Philadelphia wouldn't give the production company, United Artists, permission to film in Philadelphia. Running on the strict budget, they couldn't afford the permits, and so they developed something that was used for the very first time in the film Rocky. It was called a Steadicam. It's used in most films now. You ever watch Rocky and wonder why they shoot so much of it in the early morning foggy hours? Because they didn't have permits. So before the city got to work every morning, they would drive up in vans, unmarked vans, pile out, set up the Steadicam. They would film their scenes, jump back in the vans, and go somewhere else to film. All those shots of running through the streets, running up and down the steps, they had permits for that. They didn't know they were in the film until they showed up in the film. It's 72 steps from the bottom to the top of the Philadelphia Art Museum. And in all the Rocky pictures that were good, <laughs> he ran up them. Including the one that showed up called Creed, which is the one film that Sylvester Stallone didn't write, which put the book into the Rocky series after everyone thought it was done. Take a look at the screen and go back and relive some of those moments. famous and if you've ever been to Philadelphia you can actually go and stand where he stood in the first film there is a bronze slab that is there with his boot prints on it that he has autographed that you can stand at the top and raise your hands and have your picture made I shared with you that I was stunned and I've been to Philadelphia a number of times since and every time I go to Philadelphia I go there but I go and I run up the steps and that's a lot of steps by the way 
And don't kid yourself. You turn the music on, it's still a lot of steps. You. <laughs> so now I'm much more the pastor sociologist. And, and, and you watch, but over the course of an hour, you'll watch carload after carload of people pull up and people will run up the steps and pose. Sometimes they kneel when they get to the top of the steps. And if you have the moment and you can engage them, you ask the question, why? And usually they come because it is a moment where just like so many that watch the film, they connect with the film because in getting there and arriving, it is that moment of overcoming and standing up and, 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 and it's, a, it's a victory moment. So much so that they've written a book about it. They've done a study on it called The Rocky Steps. And they talk about the people who have come after surviving cancer, people who have come because of a setback, people who have come after they've experienced loss, and people who do this because it's become a part of that process of them stepping into that next moment of being more than they are. And it dawned on me a few years ago, that this, I loved it because, you know, the, the movie, of course, I kind of grew up watching the movies, but then also because, you know, I was an athlete, so that kind of helped and it was always fun. But it also dawned on me that the steps in some way are a metaphor for the church, and here's why, but it didn't, I didn't understand it until I saw the last film called Creed. Because in that film, it's the one that wasn't written by Sylvester Stallone. They came to him after the series was done. He had done a farewell called Rocky Balboa. He'd made a ton of money with it. He had to sell it when the studios didn't want to do it, but because he had made so much money for him in the past, they took a risk on it. And he wrote an amazing story. We tied up all the storylines of the Rocky saga. And if you didn't like the first one, you didn't like the last one. But if you liked the first one, you loved the last one. He actually walked into the ring at the end and waved goodbye to the fans. It was an amazing moment. Wept. But then Creed came out, and I thought, what are they doing? What's going on? And a group of writers approached Stallone with an idea for a story, a concept, and he bought into it and said he'd be in it, although he didn't write it. And in the storyline, he trains the son of Apollo Creed, his old friend, Adonis Creed. And Creed, Creed's son approaches him about training him, and then they did something That was so smart, but also heartbreaking. And I'm going to cry because I'm, I'm, I'm a sap at heart. <laughs> and I watched this this past week. This is a movie spoiler alert. But they make the character Rocky sick. And he faces life and death. And at one point decides that it's okay, he'd rather die because all the people that he loved is gone. Until Apollo Creed's son tells him, no, you have something left to live for. And so as Rocky Balboa goes through cancer treatments, he trains Apollo Creed's son to get to the 72 steps at the end of the movie. And at the end of the movie, for the first time, the Rocky character goes up the steps with Adonis Creed. Now understand, what you just saw in that clip is a guy that starts in 1976 running to the top of the steps, giving you that victory moment that inspired people from all over the world that go to Philadelphia that don't go to the museum. I've been there now six times and I've never been in the museum. <laughs> and I will not ever go there, I don't think. But I've been to the top of the steps every time, sometimes faster than others. If you watch the clips closely, and Stallone talked about this later, the one scene where he runs up and he's chasing a little kid, that was his son in real life who passed away at age 30. And have a father hold his son in his arms and say, there was nothing I could do for him to help him. In the snow, in those moments, but this time on the way up, if you ever get a chance to watch Creed, watch it. Sylvester Stallone acts and pulls off one of the most incredible scenes, if you've seen the saga. And on the way to the top of the steps, he has to stop to rest. Because this time, as a cancer survivor, 
he doesn't have the strength to go. And Adonis Creed looks at him and says, don't get to stop, just one more step, which is what Stallone had been telling them the whole movie, getting ready for a fight. One more step. We're not done yet. And he says, I need to wait. Give me a second. And together they get to the top, and they stand at the top. And Sylvester Stallone looks out over the city of Philadelphia and says, you know, from up here, you can see your whole life in front of you. And Adonis Creed says, how does it look? And Stallone says, not so bad. Series is over. A fabulous bookend. And the reason that all of a sudden I understood the steps for the first time is because you know what? We are called to be victorious and we're called to be conquerors, but we don't have to do it on our own. And those steps get tough. And it's tough going out every day facing this thing called life and facing this world that we live in. And it's tough to get to the top. But you know, as we get there and every time we stop and every time you feel like you have to take a knee and every time you feel like you have to rest, God is there to say, no, 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 one more step. We're not done yet. You've got more to do and you're not going to lose because I am with you. Now I understand the 72 steps that I never understood before. And I think that's probably why I loved and hated the Creed movie. Because I read into it, and if all of life is a biblical illustration, and it is, then all of a sudden the metaphor for the church became very, very real. And you and I are somewhere on those steps right now. And some days it's easy to go up, and some days it's not so easy to go up. And sometimes being who we were created to be is tough. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, Rocky, on this I will build my church, on your commitment on the commitment that we make to him, he builds our life. And Peter would later write that we are living stones connected to that rock, connected to the stone. That's what it is. We become a part of this thing that Jesus has done, part of the body of Christ where we become a part of what he is trying to do in the world. And he has called us to charge and he's called us to win. He said the gates of hell will not stand against you. You will have victory and it's going to happen. But I will be with you. But you have to be on the steps and you have to go. And in our lives we have the choice all the time. Of what we're going to do. And so if you are a follower. If you believe then you have made a decision to take that journey and become a living stone, if you will. A part of this thing that God is doing and a part of touching and changing the world with the love of Christ, which brings me to the closing question. What is the church? Well, it's not a building. It's a common mistake. It's not a place. It's people. It's us. By definition, the church is the manifestation of Jesus Christ and his people in the world. You've heard me say that a lot. It's the living stone, just the body of Christ. It's you and I. We're the church. Built upon a confession because we've done something that had to be done. We've made a decision about what we think and what we believe about who Jesus is and what he's done. And that decision has changed everything. And because it's changed everything, it's changed us. And we're now called to go into the battle. And the gates of hell won't win. Because we're not alone. Because he's with us. There is a river called the Atchafala River. It's 137 miles long. It is a distributary of the Mississippi River that meanders through south-central Louisiana and empties into the Gulf of Mexico. If you find it on a map, you'll realize it serves as a significant source of income for the region because of many uh, industrial and commercial opportunities it offers. It's scenic, it's productive, it's enriching. And yet, it doesn't exist if it's not for the mighty Mississippi. Because it feeds off of the Mississippi River, which gives its, li it gives its, its life, and that's how it flows. 
And so for all of the benefit and all of the beauty and all of the things that it brings to those that are touched by it, if it cuts itself off from the Mississippi, if it were to be disconnected, it no longer is a river at all. That's how the church works. As long as we're connected to Christ, we can take the steps. We can make it to the top. We touch and change the world. If we try to do it on our own, if we disconnect, if we decide it's not important, not only do we fail, but we never discover the joy of living up to the potential of who we were created to be. And we never make the impact that we were created to have, and you never become the best version of you. And one of the reasons that church rocks is because we build on him. And we're connected to him. And we can do all things through him who gives us strength. And so for your now why, they're the same every week. Here's the question, the memory question. What in your life have you been able to do because of Jesus that you couldn't have done without Jesus? Now, hopefully this is an easy question. But answer it honestly. Because there are some folks who've managed to kind of figure out that they can get through life without him. And remember the moments that he has brought you through where you've gotten where you are today because he was willing to do what he said he would do. And he's allowed you to take your life and connect to him and build on him. And while those memories are there, this moves us into the moment question. And the moment question is simply this. Because of who he is and because of what he's done and because of the fact that he has called you to be the church, what are you doing today, this week, to maximize the moments that he gives you? What kind of steps are you charging up this week with him that you couldn't do without him? What is he calling you to do now, in the here and now, to impact the world? You got up this morning. He's called you to a purpose. He's given you this day. And this day is to be used for making sure that others hear, find out, and can connect. And understand that you are a part of something that is so much bigger and greater than you are. As you begin each day, does this become the priority of your day? How am I going to bless others this day? What am I going to do with my life this day that impacts others? What am I going to do this day that makes the lives of others different and better because of the life that God has given me? One more step. One more moment. One more opportunity. And then last but not least, The one that we always underestimate is momentum. Because so often when we talk about doing things for him and so often we think about how he's working our life, we think, well, you know, I just don't know what he's doing. I just don't feel like he's doing much. But here's what I know. You start charging the steps. You start doing what it is you were created to do. You start looking for those opportunities to do ministry. You start remembering the moments that he's brought you to. You start taking the time to map out how God wants to use you. And you know what begins to happen? It becomes a lifestyle and you carry it over day after day and it builds momentum in your life because you can see the progress. Here's what I know about the rocky steps in Philadelphia. You never get to the top if you don't take the first step. You're always at the bottom. But yet, once you begin the journey, the momentum begins to build. And once you begin 
living your life and understanding that your life is not an accident and Jesus has said upon you, on your commitment, on who you are and what you've done, I will build my church and hell will not win. Not to get overly churchy on you, but it is a battle. And we live in a world that's tough. And the world has made it very easy for people to go to hell. They've sugarcoated the pathway. But yet, we're called to be different. Jesus is the hope. We're the living stones. And we have an opportunity to change the world with his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, each moment you give us is a gift. It's a precious gift. We have squandered them by too often whining and complaining and focusing on what's wrong instead of what's right. We've allowed our blessings sometimes to become burdens. We've forgotten to be thankful for the moment and instead tried to analyze what's wrong with the moment. And yet, when we're honest and when we're willing to be real with you, we understand that you are the giver of all good things and all of life is a gift. And so that might, means that no matter what we face, no matter what we do, hard or easy, good, not so good, in the middle of all of that, you are there and you're with us each step of the way because we have decided to live our life for you because of who you are, Christ, Savior, living God. And when you stake your life on that, everything changes. My prayer is that we would do just that, that we would allow that truth and that reality to change us from the inside out so that every moment that we have is different. Every moment that you give us, we will embrace and live to the fullest and that we will always be thankful and looking for ways to make this world a better place because we have been there and moved through it with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.